Picture a world where drugs are not tested on animals, but on lab-grown organs in a dish. Where looking for a toxic side effect by dissecting mouse livers is a thing of the past. And the human safety profile of a new medicine can be determined on a chip. A world where you can discover personalized treatments on organs grown from your own cells. With the advent of new tissue engineering technologies, could a future beyond animal testing be on the horizon? Could we soon grow healthy organs in the lab, in a dish, on a chip? To find out, join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug into Invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, are the days of using animals in medical research numbered? The number of drugs in development by pharmaceutical companies increases year on year. And by the last count, there were over 18,000 drugs in the pharma pipeline in 2021. And at some point in the drug's development, scientists are asking, is it safe for use in humans? And the main method we use to determine this is by using a so-called animal model. Now in the cosmetics industry, testing on animals was outlawed in the EU in 2009. But if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, the number of animals used there hasn't changed much since the mid-1980s. Now, there have been moves afoot to replace, reduce and refine the use of animal testing in pharma, with some key legislation working its way through in the EU and US. And so I wanted to know what sort of work was being done to model the effects of drugs and their toxicity, which could leave animals out of the picture. And it turns out that models which involve growing cell cultures in vitro, effectively creating artificial organs in a dish, have been on the rise for some time and lie at the cutting edge of the life sciences realm. Testing drugs in these systems could, in theory, provide better outcomes for humans and animals at a lower cost and in a shorter time. But how close are we to making this a reality? What are the blockers to achieving it at scale? And what specific sorts of cell models are scientists currently able to build? This is what I wanted to find out, so I got in touch with a few people working at the forefront of the field. First off, I spoke to Lorna Ewart. Lorna is the Chief Scientific Officer at Emulate, a company that creates advanced in vitro models for understanding how diseases, medicines, chemicals and foods affect human health. Lorna is passionate about the pursuit of drug discovery and development. After working in the Microphysiological Systems Centre of Excellence within AstraZeneca and beginning her own firm, Verily Consulting, Lorna is now renowned for her expertise in organ chips and organoids. So I started off by going back to the beginning and asked her about how drugs are developed and what sort of testing companies need to undertake. What is that kind of space between the discovery and the clinic? What do you have to do in order to get some some molecule that's been discovered into the clinic? Yeah, so, the, you know, the typical pattern for drug discovery um, and development is to go through a series of experiments that demonstrate that a drug is safe and is efficacious. So usually what happens is there's a number of earlier 
more simple tests that are done to confirm potency if you're looking for efficacy um, and then also checking that the drugs are not or potential drug candidates are not cytotoxic. And when the teams believe that they've got molecules that are looking both potent and don't carry inherent cytotoxicity, they'll progress it through usually to more sophisticated complex models, which in the main typically involve the use of animals. So for an efficacy perspective, they'll be looking for certain um, models that represent elements of the disease that they're um, interested in treating. From a safety perspective, the animals are used um, to confirm that there's no impact on major target organs as they're referred to. So things like the liver, the heart, the brain, the lungs, the kidney, that type of thing. Okay. What impact does that sort of testing have on the on the downstream progression of that drug candidate? Yep. So the the whole premise behind drug discovery is operating like a funnel. So what, what people are trying to do, what the scientists are trying to do is um, identify the best candidate. And these tests are there to weed out the, the candidates that are not likely to survive when they transition into the clinical phase of development. And that's when you actually take the drug candidates forward and, and test it on humans then? That's right. So at the moment, it's um, it, it, it's the regulatory guidelines that exist in animal that, that involve pharmaceutical companies testing in animals to confirm safety ahead of the first in human clinical trial, the phase one trial. Just thinking about the, the kind of the animal side of things, are there efforts to reduce the use of animals in, in preclinical work? Yeah, I, um, I, I would say without a shadow of a doubt, every pharmaceutical company and actually even biotechnology companies and, and you know, new, newer biopharma are all interested in alternatives to animals. And, and, and that, I think, comes from several areas. I think, first of all, there's an, an ethical and moral obligation to reduce um, the testing on animals as, as far as possible. But I think, um, secondarily, we're, we're starting to learn that actually animal models don't always translate into the clinic um, from a safety perspective they do a reasonable job there's a number of publications that will tell you that um, you, you know you're picking up 60 to 70 percent of potentially toxic drugs um, but from a disease perspective there's a startling statistic that actually um, all of the Alzheimer's therapies that have been trialed preclinically in animal models not one of them has succeeded in a clinical trial so that's a hundred percent failure and and for me that's just not acceptable those statistics Lorna gave really stuck out for me only 70 percent efficacy in general for animal trials and 100% failures in clinical trials for Alzheimer's therapies, which succeeded in animal tests. These are figures which pharma companies can't ignore. So even beyond the moral arguments against animal testing, I wanted to know if there are any alternative models for the preclinical testing stage, which are in fact more predictive than animal testing. Are there other models which could not only solve the ethical issues, but also provide better data? perhaps even more quickly than with animal and human testing. To investigate further, I spoke to another scientist who's working on the development of in vitro models, Maria Cavallaris. Maria is best known for her pioneering work in children's cancer. Last year, she and collaborator Justin Gooding were awarded the Australian Museum Eureka Prizes for their contribution to a 3D bioprinting technology that promises to revolutionise cancer research. Her work on tumour cells, 
drug resistance, nanotechnologies and bioprinting have produced countless new discoveries in the field. So I wanted to get a sense of the role testing has played in her career and whether she's seeing a shift away from animal models. We started off by talking some more about the challenges that animal testing puts forward and what people have been doing in vitro to better mimic the tumour environment. Okay, and are there other deficiencies that you might find with animal models that kind of aren't giving you the, the power that you would really like? Yeah, look, the, um, some of the challenges with animal models are also getting the doses of drugs um, compatible to what you would be able to give in humans. Um, so how do you scale up? How do you pick the best dose? Now, a phase one trial in a human is a toxicity study. So where they actually uh, test increasing doses of drugs to um, reach what we call the maximum tolerated dose. And once they do that phase one trial and they determine that, then you go into a phase two where you're looking, start looking at things like efficacy, et cetera. But also in the humans, they're, they're looking for uh, toxic side effects as well that may not have been predicted. And are you always getting really good concordance between the kind of the animal studies and the, the human experiments? No, look, that's one of the big challenges. Um, there's, there's a lot of um, studies that go from these, um, these animal studies to phase one that never, ever reach a stage four or clinical approval stage. And it's, it's, there's multiple factors why that happens. Um, it has to do with things like, you know, the bioavailability of the drugs when they get into humans, um, how quickly they're cleared out of the body, you know, um, potentially, like I said, there could be toxic side effects. So even though, you know, some patients might have some responses, you get the majority of patients with toxic side effects. So there's various reasons why drugs fail um, in the clinic. And it, you can't always predict um, every step of the way. Um, there are more and more uh, studies being done to try and have predictive tools. Um, but in the end, um, really humans are where you have to end up testing and, and seeing what happens. Given, given that it's not always completely predictive, are there moves afoot to try and think about alternatives to animal testing? Look, uh, yes, I, I think there, there's definitely um, a huge interest to have more effective in vitro models, um, more predictive in vitro models that we can have in the laboratory. And, and I'll talk about those um, in, in a moment. Um, and, and also other tools to assess um, the, you know, how stable a drug might be once it gets to the liver, et cetera. So these are also what we call in vitro tests. But yeah, I think I mentioned before that, you know, traditionally we, we grow cells on plastic in two dimensions, but things like cancer cells don't grow in that form. They grow in a three dimension and all that. While it's really useful to grow cells like that for certain applications that we do, in reality, we need to be thinking about growing them in a more realistic state. And there's been um, an enormous interest around the world and also from our lab and, and many others about growing tumor cells in three dimensions. And you can actually um, grow them as uh, what we call um, tumor spheroids or tumoroids, whichever way you want to uh, form it. Um, you may have also heard the, the term organoids when people are trying to grow uh, normal tissues either from stem cells or um, other types of, of cells in the body. 
So what we know from these type of models is they're much more representative um, of the phenotype and the genotype. So the uh, the behavior of the cells, but also the genetics of the cells, uh, particularly when you're talking about cancer, um, compared to growing them in two dimensions on plastic. So if you if you grow cells on two dimensions on plastic and you grow them in three dimensions and you do genomics on both of those and compare them to genomics of the original tumor, the three-dimensional grown tumors are much closer. And does that also translate forward to better predictive power for the for those clinical studies as well? Is that something we could we know about? That that we don't know yet. Um, and and there's a lot of work um, trying to determine that. What we we are hoping though is that we can reduce the number of animals we're using. So if they so if these are more predictive of how a tumor might respond, because you know it's a big difference between bathing something that's growing in a single sheet of cells with drug over the top where they're getting covered enormously, compared to three dimensions where the drugs have to either penetrate um, or get in. Um, you know, into that that sort of spheroid to actually ha- exert an effect. Yeah, it seems a lot more representative, doesn't it, than than trying to do it in two D, which isn't really mimicking the, the the situation in the body at all. So what what we um, what we are trying to do is eliminate things that are likely not to work before we do animal testing. And while at this point in time we can't eliminate animal testing. Uh, you know, we can definitely minimise animal testing. In vitro testing, that is to say testing on cell cultures in the lab, not on live subjects, is moving forward at a really exciting pace. Researchers and scientists like Maria are getting better at recreating the tumour microenvironment to generate more representative drug testing data. While Maria looks at the effect of drugs on cancerous tissue, Some researchers are looking at other diseases. What can we do to treat infectious disease, for example? And what in vitro models might we need to investigate that? To find out, I got in touch with Molly Stevens. Molly Stevens is Professor of Biomedical Materials and Regenerative Medicine in the Departments of Materials and Bioengineering at Imperial College London. Following a postdoc working on tissue engineering methods with Bob Langer at MIT, Molly set up her own group at Imperial in 2004. The Stevens Group is a multidisciplinary research group using innovative bioengineering approaches to address key problems in regenerative medicine and biosensing. It was also where I completed my PhD, and so it was great to get back in touch with Molly and hear about her latest work in the field. I asked Molly what specific work she's currently doing with in vitro models and the applications she's seeing from them. So thinking thinking about the in vitro models that you're working on, are there any particular aspects of human physiology or human biology that you're looking to model there? I think um, we're really interested in thinking about how we can bring aspects of bioengineering to making 3D models uh, that can be used in the lab to... um, really help develop uh, hallmarks of real organs, but in an organoid format. So we're particularly interested in uh, developing three-dimensional material structures, for example, that can be used to culture cells and provide a support for those cells 
to enable those cells to recreate an organoid system that has a better level of complexity. So it's a a particular function of a human organ that you're trying to recreate, but not necessarily the entire organ itself. People are looking at this in many different ways. Um, And there's been organoids made now of um, pretty much most uh, organs in the body. People have worked on organoid systems that would uh, replicate some aspects um, of those organs. And people might be interested in those for many different reasons. So it could be, for example, to study some features of development, so quite fundamental studies, or it could be used in much more applied um, disease applications. So actually making an organoid that might be uh, resembling some markers of a, a patient's disease. Okay. And and then are, are there any, anything where more industrial applications might come to the fore? You can... Um, really, really think of these um, in many different ways. For example, um, just screening of drugs um, in vitro um, in a system that would give you perhaps a lot more information than a 2D cell system. Um, But recently, for example, people have even used um, forebrain organoids uh, to look at, for example, how Zika virus um, is interacting with them. Um, people have also looked at um, human gastric organoids to see how infections with um, uh, H. pylori, for example, um, might interact with those. And that's that's really important because if you think of something like H. pylori, um, the infection in mice is actually really different to how it would progress in uh, human. So for in human, uh, for example, uh, might lead to some ulceration and cancer, and, and you just don't see that within mice. So being able to actually have human uh, gastric organoid models for those types of disease interactions and infections um, is really um, very relevant, I think. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting to think about. Some uh, human diseases... You need to have human cells to be able to look at them. Yes, and particularly um, if if you think about diseases that present very differently in a human to, for example, a, a, a smaller um, mammal or mouse, um, but also um, the um, ability to uh, genetically um, uh, essentially control the cells um, within the in vitro system means that you could study, for example, some mutations that might be related to particular diseases. And that would be really important. For example, thinking about diseases like cystic fibrosis, where you have a, a very clear mutation um, to the gene and you can then um, really use this more aspect of personalized medicine to make um, organoids that would also have that mutation. Okay. So you've, you've- kind of got some control over the the cells that you put in the models what other sort of controls can you put in um to better recreate the human physiology the sorts of things that we're interested in are um aspects of um control to the organoid that we would achieve by bringing in the sort of cutting edge things that are going on in the field of bioengineering so for example um can we create materials that have a really interesting topography to help to um coax the cells to organize in a particular way Can we achieve uh, gradients of um, chemistry or release of growth factors, for example? Um, Can we position cells really accurately by using the latest advances in printing? Um, 
also can we use aspects of bioengineering to help us to grow blood vessels and achieve vas vascularization within the organoid systems. Um, and that um, achieving, for example, vascularization is um, an approach that we've done quite a bit of work on and, and so have other groups. Um, and that can um, utilize many different approaches around printing, but also things like uh, laser ablation or um, and, and really the aim there is that you can make, in the end, perfusible channels and um, that you can achieve um, uh, a better health, really, of the organoids so that it can perform in a more uh, robust and scalable manner. What kind of challenges are you seeing in the field beyond just the reproducibility? I think that reproducibility of um, tissue structures that are... Um, the same one day from the from the next whenever you make them um, is is a really important aim still. Um, I'm also really interested in thinking about how we can um, better understand and mimic interactions between different organs, for example. So this is more organ on a chip type approaches. Um, and actually we're part of a uh, hub called the Hybrid Technology Hub which is um, based out of Norway, um, which is really a center for organ-on-a-chip technology. And that's really interesting in terms of thinking about how different orb organs, um, particularly, for example, uh, with metabolic functions, um, could, could be cultured um, in organoid format, but uh, within um, uh, modular fluidic containers so that you can actually study the interaction uh, across those organs and in response to different drugs as well. Those challenges are really significant here. Reliable reproducibility is one thing which will be vital to the success of these kinds of models. But there are parts of this field beyond organoids which could hold the answer to this, like organ on a chip, which Molly just mentioned. I wanted to know more about some of these other types of in vitro modelling, so I went back to Lorna with a few questions. I asked her for some specific examples of how these types of in vitro modelling are being applied, and the links between different fields that this necessitates. Okay, so can we maybe take, for example, something like liver toxicity? How, how far can you replicate human physiology in, a, in an in vitro model for that? application? Yes, yeah, so um, when I was at AstraZeneca we collaborated with Emulate, who I'm with now yeah. and um, Emulate at the time were also working with Janssen Pharmaceuticals we, we set about trying to develop a, a liver chip there and what we tried to do is model the liver sinusoids it's a very specialised area of the liver there are four cell types in that particular part of the, the liver the hepatocyte, the sinusoidal endothelial cell the kupfer cell and the stellate cell and what we found was that when we were able to build this um, human liver chip we were able to demonstrate that it had the typical functionality that you would expect so it produces albumin Mm -hmm. key plasma protein, um, very essential in the body. 
And it also produces urea, which is part of the detoxification process that the liver is very central in. Um, And of course, it expresses um, all of the metabolizing enzymes, again, that are needed in the detoxification process. It really really is like a a mini liver. It it does all the same functions. It it, it does all the same functions. And and phenotypically, you can see that the cells um, look like hepatocytes. They express the right markers and so on and so forth. I mean, how would you construct a liver on a chip? Mm -hmm. What, What goes into that? Yep. So the the emulate chip is, um, in fact, all of our chips at the moment are built in the same way. Um, They're quite simply, um, it's PDMS, it's a rubber material that we make our chips from. And within there, we we have two channels. We have an an upper channel and a lower channel. And those two channels are separated by a porous membrane. and then what we do is we seed our hepatocytes into the upper channel and we, we seed them in a way that one would seed them in a typical conventional 2D culture. So that's we put some extracellular matrix yeah. on the membrane, we put our hepatocytes in and then we put another layer of extracellular matrix on And these on top. are just kind of flowed in one by one, is that? Yeah, we, 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 um, it's a cell suspension that we apply into, into the chip. And then on the lower channel um, for this chip, it's slightly more complicated because we then have the remaining three cells, the endothelial cell, the Kupfer cell and the stellate mm. cell. So, I mean, it sounds more, it sounds almost like kind of a, a very, very close interface between the engineering and the biology. A hundred percent. That's exactly how Emulate has, um, you know, really been born and brought up. It's it's a continual conversation between the engineers and the biologists. And without that um, close collaboration and communication, the models that we have today wouldn't have been possible. What about kind of adoption? How's the kind of the persuasion on that side of things going? Yeah, so I, I, I think... Um, Emulate work with um, the majority of the the major pharmaceutical companies that that and we would define that by in terms of R and D spend. Right. Um, so um, some of them public, some of them still remain private. Um, and what we find is that they're very interested in in how they can apply the the technology, and it varies between companies wanting to um, employ their own FTE, their own personnel mm-hmm. to run these to um, then coming to us as a fee-for-service type of thing. So I think um, they're... They haven't yet, they're not yet over the line into routine adoption. And I think that really is what all um, developers like Emulate would like to see. Um, and and there's, very, there's some levers we can pull there to enable that. So one of them, for instance, is to try and get the technology um, written into the regulatory guidance. I see, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and use the help of the regulators. And, and there's been a lot of progress in that area. Um, both here in Europe, the, the EMA um, are trying to push forward a bill that ends animal testing as early as 2025. Um, and in the US, um, they're they're debating what's known as the FDA Modernization Act, which again, talks to alternatives to animal models. And although they haven't yet put a formal date um, into that, you know, the fact that it's being debated at the highest levels in, in the US um, government is, is, is a very, very encouraging. Kind of shows the, the trajectory that, that we're kind of on, doesn't it? Two things stuck out for me there. First, the interdisciplinary nature of this field something which is quite unique to this kind of in vitro testing and which we'll be getting back to shortly. And secondly, the idea of adoption. Lorna thinks that we're going to be seeing more and more applications for the organ on a chip and other in vitro models in the coming years. But I wanted to know what was making the biggest impact right now. So I went back to Maria to see what work she's currently specialising in in this space. 
Where are you seeing the biggest impact at the moment? Which sort of testing are we getting best data from? Where's its kind of key use case at the moment? Look, I think um, with with 3D models, um, when they they were first developed, particularly in the in the cancer field, was a way to also understand cancer biology, um, and and probably they they were sort of more developed around that, understand tumors grow, how tumor stem cells influence the growth, re, you know, response to therapy. Now, but the the original methods are incredibly labor intensive to do, and um, you know, if you're trying to do them manually. So I think now with um, the advent of 3D bioprinting for tissues and cells, et cetera, it gives us a capability to grow, um, you know, like I said, hundreds of these mini tumours in a dish and really not only understand cancer biology because then you can do high-throughput screening because we can couple this now with some of the high-throughput imaging technologies where you can put plates in, um, you know, 380 four well plates, 96 well plates, and rapidly screen these models, look at the morphology of the cells or any other phenotypic features that you're looking for the cells, as, our, as well as look at response to drugs. You know, are your drugs killing the cells? Are they just arresting the cells? Are they, you know, are the cells growing through the treatment, for example? So these are these are all important bits of information we need to get. Um, the, other, the other advantage, of course, too, is that to be able to, um, grow some normal, yeah, and I'm putting inverted commas, normal cells, such as liver cells, cardiac cells. Again, you know, organoids of these have been developed. And then if you can put them as part of your high throughput format, you can also be screening and modeling against these normal tissues. Just thinking about kind of hot applications as well. Um, what type of applications are you seeing? This is, is kind of a really nice niche for. Look, I think I mentioned, um, you know, the tissue engineering, you know, there's a lot of interest in bioprinting um, cells for um, meat substitutes, cardiac tissue, so, you know, repairing uh, part of a, a muscle uh, from cardiac damage. There's been some nice work um, there. It, it Even, you know, to the extent that people tr- are putting some of these 3D bioprinters into the theatres, you know, surgical theatres, um, and, you know, I'm talking about cell type bioprinting, but there's also um, things like, you know, repairing. You know, at the moment, if you go for a knee replacement, you know, they do all the scans, they try and fit the, the best one, you know. Um, in the future, you'll be custom, you know, be all customised for you. That idea of customization is really interesting because personalization like this is going to be key if these kinds of technologies are going to be used at scale in the coming years. Molly is a big advocate for personalized medicines using in vitro modeling and has seen similarly important applications for it as well. Could we soon be reaching a point where everyone has a store of their own cells to test on or even to regrow organs? I asked Molly to elaborate on this fascinating future for the field. How about other materials as well? I think I've read some of your your work on, you might call them more medical devices, so implants and, and collagen. How are we using in, in vitro models to investigate those types of systems? I'm currently um, serving as director of the UK Regenerative Medicine Platform Hub for Smart Materials. And that um, hub is looking at um, 
different application areas. So one of the things that we're focused on a lot is uh, musculoskeletal, but we also are doing a lot of work um, on the eye um, and also on the liver. And that brings together um, 10 or so different universities across the whole uh, UK. And one of the things we've done for that hub that's a little bit different um, to a traditional academically led hub is that we're actually thinking about translation in the whole design of the hub. So, for example, we have uh, experts in there that are bringing in uh, immunology and and safety um, inputs to our work, um, but also a lot of work thinking about scalability, uh, manufacturing um, and um, product approval. Our hub is currently based um, around um, essentially a number of different uh, diseases in those organs that I've mentioned. Um, But you could easily see that the types of work we're doing, which is around, for example, 3D matrices to get cells to better organize, um, could be used for organoid applications um, as well. So there's lots and lots of learnings, I think, that can be translated um, back and forth between the regenerative medicine field and the organoid field. Just going back to the organoid slightly, it sounds like you have the possibility to have these organ avatars so it's a representation of your own organ of its own function is that something that's going to help with uh, with drug testing and personalized medicine and maybe even have it in your own home there's a really um important avenue i think for using organoids in personalized medicine because even though People um, might have broadly similar physiologies. We're all very, very individual um, and we all have different um, makeups to our tissues, but also potentially different um, changes in our genes. I can give the example of uh, cystic fibrosis again as a a really important example in this area and one that that people have um, already started to, to look at. Um, because it it makes so much sense, I think, to have a a disease where you do have a very uh, defined um, gene difference that you could model um, in in the lab. But really personalised medicine approaches for organoids um, could be taken much, much further and are being taken much, much further. Cardiovascular, um, so so heart organoids is another... Um, example where genetic genetic mutations could be really interesting to study in terms of some of the electrophysiology of those cardiac organoids, but um, also within different cancers. And that's another very active area is thinking about different genetic um, contributions to different cancer organoids from different patients. So, so do you think you would actually be harvesting cells from from individual? patients or, or might you have a, a bank of cells or you know how would it how do you think it would work in practice these these more personalized models there's quite a lot of work going on in creating organoid biobanks and um Again, cancer is a, a good exemplar there because there are many different types of cancers with uh, many different biologies underlying them um, 
and being able to have uh, biobanks that could be accessible um, to different people that want to do different things. So whether they're studying um, fundamental disease mechanisms or they're interested in drug screening or, or they're um, uh, perhaps um, looking at other aspects of personalized medicine, I think having access to organoid biobanks is um, really ex- exciting. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. It seems to have come kind of full circle from kind of biology through to materials and, and engineering. Is, is that important for creating organoids, having that kind of mixture of, of disciplines? Yes, I think it's um, really a very exciting time in the field now because we're going from um, quite a lot of progress now in the field of tissue engineering and regenerative medicine, which is the, the field that I come from. Um, and then a lot of really nice work uh, coming more from a cell biology background around uh, really focusing on stem cells and how can you get them to self-organize into 3D structures? How can you control their self-renewal and differentiation? Um, but that work wasn't necessarily um, so much um, at the interface with bioengineering. And now those two fields, I think, are converging in a way that you can really get the best of, of both of them. That complex web of scientists working side by side that Molly described is undoubtedly making a unique impact on the quest for more effective and predictive in vitro testing. And the fruits of that labour are now yielding some pretty exciting results, especially for pharma companies who are looking to move away from in vivo testing. Now about a week or so after I recorded my interview with Lorna, she sent me a copy of a manuscript in which Emulate had evaluated the predictive power and potential productivity gains of their liver chip model. These findings were so interesting, not least in relation to the economics behind adoption, that I had to get back in touch with her to discuss it. So I called her up to find out some more. Great to see you again, Lorna. I think between the last time we spoke and now, you sent, uh, sent me a paper through that Emulate has published. And actually, it really builds on some of the things we were talking about, adoption and, and predictive power. Could you say a little bit about, about how, how you feel organ on a chip might get adopted in the, in the pharma industry? Yeah, so I think um, what pharma are looking for are models and technologies that have been um well characterised and I'm using my words very carefully because often people could refer to well characterised model as a validated model but the word validation has a very different meaning when we describe the use of models and technologies Um, and it often is associated more with a regulatory context. So quite simply for broader adoption of new technologies Pharma scientists are looking for models that are well characterised, that are reproducible and show robust characteristics. Is there a more of an economic case to be made? I know that you've, you've written a paper about the human liver chip and its performance and its implications for predictive toxicology. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about how that kind of builds your evidence base? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what, we, what we did with our liver chip model is follow some third party guidelines that were set by a consortia of pharmaceutical companies um, which are part of an organisation known as Innovation and Quality or the IQ. And this particular consortia set out a series of guidelines and said if, if you um, build a model according to these guidelines, we'd be really interested in it and we believe that that model would be qualified. 
So we decided we would follow that approach, but we recognise that the adoption of the technology um, actually involves two key stakeholder groups within any organisation. First of all, it's the subject matter experts, the scientists, that you need to convince that the model is robust, reproducible, well characterised. But secondarily, the scientists involved often aren't the people who are the budget holders. So we decided to collaborate with um, a man called Dr Jack Scannell, who has written and researched a lot about pharma productivity. And he helped us build a strong economic case for the adoption of models such as organ on a chip technology. And the idea really behind it was to speak to both of those stakeholder groups as an additional lever to accelerate the adoption of the technology. Okay, that that sounds like a, a very kind of well thought through approach to, to this problem. What, what were your kind of parameters that you put into the study uh, so that you would be able to have a, a convincing argument? So um, the, the scientific parameters were um, using um, characterising the, the, the model with enough known um, drugs that had been in the clinic. So there was really clear data on what happens in the intended patient population or set of healthy volunteers. So we, we tested 27 of these drugs. We included within that 27 some drugs that were known to be truly negative and that allowed us to generate um, a statistical assessment of our model performance which is um, sensitivity and specificity and we found um, that actually when one accounts for protein binding which is a particularly important phenomena when thinking about um, pharmacology free drug drives drug effect we found that the performance of our chip um, gave an 87% sensitivity, 100% specificity. And then we used those parameters within um, a well-described financial model of a typical pharmaceutical organisation. And that was published by Paul et al. And, and, and essentially what we did was we accounted for um, the, the, the safety-related attrition within those financial models and we backed out safety-related attrition due to other organ models. And we, we were then left with a number that um, helped us determine how many drugs typically may fall out due to hepatotoxicity. And then we, we used that as the basis of our calculation to say, OK, if we got better at predicting hepatotoxicity prior to entering the clinic, how may we change that paradigm? How might we change that parameter? And that's what led us to be able to generate a value of $3 billion in productivity savings um, or productivity gain, I should say. Have you had conversations? Have people said, oh, um, I'm really excited about the the liver chip? Um, or are they saying, actually, I'd rather have a, a different organ? Or what are you up to next? Like, what's the, what's the response been? Yeah, so we, we are speaking to, to many of um, the big pharma. It has piqued their interest, so that's good. Um, and it's a variety of things. Um, some people, you know, are quite comfortable. They would want to 
proceed with liver. Others indeed have asked about other organs. But actually where we're seeing the greatest interest is actually in the, the disease um, modelling aspects of the technology. Um, I think we maybe chatted before about the reasons for attrition. While safety is a big reason, actually what we're finding now is that it's it's the being unable to truly predict efficacy of new drugs and, and seeing um, their real impact in disease that is becoming more and more problematical for the industry. So having better biological models, human relevant models, we hope can um, move us in a better direction there. So that's actually you know, what we're really wanting to focus on next. The tantalising prospect of productivity gains in pharma and the increasingly patient-centric nature of medicines development means that widespread animal testing could be a thing of the past. And, even though we started off this episode thinking in terms of the ethics of animal testing, it turns out that these new technologies allow us to more faithfully recreate human physiology too, meaning that models could become more precise, exacting and fruitful in the data they can give back. And what's more, They may even bring a future where it's not just organs on a chip, it's brand new personalised organs being regrown in the lab whenever you need them. That's all for today. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Lorna, Maria and Molly, for their incredible insight in this truly fascinating field. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week with a two-parter on one of modern medicine's most promising new fields, cell and gene therapies, where we ask... Could disease cures become the new normal? We'll see you then. Invent Life Sciences is a podcast from TTP. It was hosted by me, Stuart Lowe, biotechnology and bioinstrumentation consultant at TTP. It was produced by Harry Stott. The assistant producers were Ewan Cameron and Florian Bohr. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.